The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we're moving on. Those who are relatively new, we've been studying these ten perfections of the heart. The word is parami, paramita in the later Buddhist traditions. And it's just a way of, uh, I mean, just in terms of the stories from early Buddhism, these are considered to be the qualities of heart that the Buddha-to-be, the Bodhisattva, cultivated over many, many lifetimes. And uh, it allowed him, then when he had his deep insight in his last life, that we know him as the Buddha, it allowed him to be a really powerful teacher because he not only had this deep insight, but he had the kind of personality that allowed him to articulate, to share, to be just a useful leader for the rest of us so that even now, 2,600 years later, I don't know about you, but these teachings, you know, having been imperfectly translated all these years, of course, they still resonate enough to be really useful for me and I think for many millions of us probably, even today, this many years later, having moved through so many different cultures, each with their own, you know, cultural tendencies and habits, but somehow the Buddha's understanding of his own mind was such that it, you know, kind of below the level of a lot of our cultural conditioning in terms of understanding the mind. And as I've been talking about the paramis, these beautiful qualities of the heart that really sort of set the stage for waking up, support this awakening process, you don't have to think of them as a linear progression, but it, it's a nice way to remember them, like generosity or dana as the first of the ten paramis. It's just because this is a pretty easy step for most of us in our better moments, right? To realize, you know what? It's really not pleasant to be a stingy human being. You know, to be so fixated on my own possessions and my own having that I'm, you know, everybody in a funny way is seen as competition. You're going to take something, even if it's you're going to take some of my time and I don't want to share my time with you. I don't want to share my possessions with you. And that's a very tight way to live. So this first parami of generosity, it's just like the heart transcends that prison. When we're stingy, it's like being imprisoned in the stinginess, in the stingy attitudes. And then the blossoming of that generosity is like, oh, I don't want to cause harm. And that's a gift, right? That's a maturing of generosity. Like, I don't know ex exactly how to do this, but as I live my life, navigate my life, make my choices, I really don't want to be planting seeds or complicit in ways that cause other people to suffer or cause myself to suffer. So we become full of care around this value of non-harming. It's a beautiful blossoming of generosity. The, like, I care enough, I'm generous enough that I'm willing to restrain myself, refrain from acting in ways that cause harm. 
That's a gift. And then that matures into like really understanding, oh, I have, this heart has this capacity to be content with what I have. I can be, it doesn't mean I'm not going to, you know, take what's offered or continue to be engaged in the world. But we can engage knowing that what I have is enough. I can still buy a new shirt, even though I'm aware of being content with what I have. And so it really throws into relief the desire for a new shirt or the desire to even like in a meditation to move our body. It's like, oh, there is some discomfort because I've been sitting still for 20 minutes. I could move, but I'm content with the unpleasant sensations of having held my body still. So then whether or not I move isn't because I don't know how to be content with my experiences as a human being right now. So then there may be other reasons to buy that shirt or move the body or do whatever we do in life, but it isn't because we're discontent that we're ill at ease with the conditions of the moment. So part of that happiness of renunciation is knowing how to be at ease with the moment, regardless of the conditions, so that we're not neurotically tight about making things different. We can still participate in the world and make choices and get stuff and give away stuff, but that activity is more about like what makes sense and what's helpful for everyone, as opposed to, I'm uneasy and I don't like it, and if I do this, I'll be more easy and I'll like it. Because that's a restless way to live a life. Always thinking we're going to get that sweet spot. And it always, you know, we get just enough juice that it seems to work. But if we take the big picture, we realize it doesn't work. It just leads to the stress of restlessness. Always, you know, I think I mentioned the promise that's ne never kept. If only, then I'll be happy. And the maturing of those first three, generosity, this beautiful valuing of non-harming, and the capacity of renunciation, the joy of contentment, then that matures into the beginnings of wisdom. And that's what I'm going to talk about for the next couple of weeks. What does wisdom mean in the context of the Buddhist teachings? And like I said, it's, it's really this maturing of the understanding of the joy of renunciation. In a way, it's a kind of generalizing. Like when we have little moments and big moments where we realize, I could do that, but I'm okay not doing that. right? And we really see like that power. It's really an empowerment to be content. So then I don't have to do that, but I could do it. I'm not afraid of doing it, but I'm not afraid of not doing it. And then the wisdom is that mind generalizing that insight into or that developing understanding of renunciation as a like a way of life. Like, oh, maybe, because what wisdom really is about is, how is it that I end up suffering so much of the time? And how is it that I can have less of the suffering or perhaps even none of the suffering? Right? So that's... That's sort of the ground or the 
the area that wisdom occupies. It's interested in how it is that we suffer, I suffer, there is suffering, and how it is that that suffering goes away. That's what wisdom cares about. So wisdom is knowing something about, in a direct, not theoretical, not philosophical, but knowing something directly about how this heart gets tight and how this heart releases that tightness. Suffering and the release of suffering in the most subjective, real sense that we care about suffering and happiness. That's what wisdom is. And the way the Buddha frames this, of course, is that, you know, just from his own living, his own life, that uh, he came to understand from paying attention that the basic problem in life, it isn't nature is somehow flawed. The flaw really is in how the heart, the mind, perceives or apprehends or understands experience. That's the problem. We understand our experience as a human being in a way that justifies grasping, justifies suffering. Greed, hatred, and delusion seem to make sense, seem to be rational and appropriate and necessary. So we use greed, hatred, and delusion in subtle and not-so-subtle ways, and therefore we suffer. But it feels like, of course I'm full of hate, of course I want to destroy this, get rid of that, of course I'm full of lust, thinking, if only, then I'll be happy. Of course I've disconnected, I'm unaware, I'm in denial, right? So hopefully when I just said those three things, you know, how uh, obvious, how sometimes we lust just makes sense, hate makes sense, denial, delusion makes sense, right? Hopefully that rings true for you because our mind, if we're if we've got the beginning of wisdom, you know, the developing wisdom, then we start to have a more honest perception, understanding of how we do engage in hatred and greed and delusion. And we do pay the price, which is feeling burdened by those mental activities, those mental habits. But it's good, it's because we're on the way, we're beginning to connect the dots. Oh, I sure, I'm, I've got a big habit of, you know, of being aversive, but it doesn't help. I have a big habit of being greedy, but I'm beginning to understand that it doesn't really help. I have this habit of denial and distraction and delusion, but I'm beginning to see that it never helps. It doesn't help me, it doesn't help anybody. So in this way, um, wisdom is very much connected, in, in a Buddhist sense, wisdom is very much connected with this insight into karma. And we want to hear about karma in a new way because we've here in the West, you know, it's just become part of our, our vocabulary. And it's used in a way of like, you deserve this because you did this in the past, you deserve this now. And it's true that Karma is related to this 
conditionality or the lawfulness or the cause and effect nature of experience, both inner and outer experience. But it's really an insight. It's not about life or Santa Claus or God getting even because we did something bad and now you got to, you know, you need your just desserts because you did that. And there's this storehouse of consequences just awaiting to nail us when uh, the time is right. But really it's, it's um, an insight about what refuge is. We actually want to take refuge. It's actually like an empowerment. It's what liberates our mind from any ideas of helplessness. Understanding karma liberates us from being, because it's really a prison. Like when we feel we're screwed, like life is just happening and I'm not in control and I can't bend, you know, nature to my will. So I'm just totally at the whims of this and that coming my way. And we can easily fall into a nihilistic view. But karma, understanding karma in the deeper Buddhist sense means we understand, oh, this experience we're having as a human being is lawful. It's conditional. And see, this aspect of karma that's so important to understand and one of the forces behind how things unfold for us is the quality of our intention, how the mind is relating. It really matters, always. And so whatever karma has already been done, well, that's already been done. Whatever intentional actions have been done in the past, that's already in motion, in play, we're living the consequences of that already. All of us are. The world, we're doing that collectively, we're doing that individually. In a very real way, this moment, this experience is the natural, perfect, you could even say, just to be provocative, unfolding of past causes and conditions. But right now there's another thing that's affecting the way it is, how the mind is relating, how intention in my heart right now, the quality of my intention, which affects how I perceive, how I understand, what I do, what I think, what I say, right? That is a present moment input to the way it is. And that present moment input of intention it's always impactful. And therefore, it never makes sense to believe we're helpless. It's just, even on a simple pragmatic level, if I think I'm helpless, I'm no longer interested in the moment. I'm interested in some kind of escape. Every escape from the present moment is stressful because you can't escape the present moment. we can only imagine that we're escaping to some, you know, expression of delusion, you know, getting in a little bubble and disconnecting from what we're feeling and from what's happening. But it's stressful, any kind of escaping the way it is. So once we understand karma, 
once we understand that how I'm relating, how my mind is understanding matters, then you see it really starts to shape this feedback loop where now my heart, now the mind values more and more being present, being mindful. Because I realize I'm not helpless and what matters is how I'm relating, how I'm understanding. Therefore, I totally am dependent on being awake, being aware, being mindfully aware, being present, being sensitive, feeling into the moment. Because it's only through this listening, the sensitivity, the, like we talked about moral sensitivity, this awareness, that the wisdom can begin to better connect the dots. Oh, when I relate in this way, things get heavier and tighter and there's more suffering. When I'm relating and understanding in this other way, things get more released, more free, more nimble, more skillful, less suffering. And not only that, but we have the Buddhist pointing out instructions around this is under, you know, in the Eightfold Path, this is under wisdom, the wisdom category of the Eightfold Path, which is wise view and wise intention. And the quality of intentions that the Buddha discovered and has taught us support the letting go, support freedom, is the intention of renunciation, the intention of kindness, and the intention of non-harming or compassion. These three intentions are the only intentions we really need to take care of our life in the moment and our relationships. We need the intention to let go, that capacity, the capacity to care, to be kind, and the capacity to refrain from doing stuff, thinking, speaking, and acting in ways that cause harm. Those intentions are enough, and they replace the intention to be greedy, the if only, then I'll be happy, the intention to be aversive, and the intention to be oblivious or disconnected. And this is, uh, as some of you have heard me mention, you know, it's so trustworthy, this part of the Buddhist teachings about dukkha or suffering, because it, it's so grounding, like wisdom, like another way to understand wisdom from uh, the Buddhist frame is that wisdom cares about cause and effect. Wisdom cares about cause and effect because it relates to why I'm suffering. So this grounding in our subjective, our actual experience of feeling bound up or feeling burdened, heavy, tight, because it's just so, you know, as we all know, when we're somewhat settled, I actually care about my suffering. I don't, that's not a, you know, something I have to contrive. It's natural to care that this heart feels tight, this heart feels burdened, this heart feels uneasy. And then, you know, that it's a natural response. Well, what can I do? What's making it that way, what allows for the unwinding, the unbinding of this heaviness, I wonder. And when we 
you know, through paying attention, we begin to distill what the Buddha teaches us. You know, there are wise intentions, the intention to let go, to be content, the intention to be kind, the intention to refrain from doing stuff that causes more stress. When we get that and we get what the opposite is, then that really begins to stabilize our life. It's not that we're immediately perfect and avoiding aversive intentions or greedy intentions or the intention to distract ourselves or be deluded, but we just get a little better as the weeks and months and years go by because we care, because we're paying attention, we know that it matters how I'm relating, we just get clear about what helps and what doesn't help, and because we we have this immediate feedback loop, like even when I do act out and I justify being averse, I see how it makes things worse. So it has that correcting that correcting mechanism built into it. Or when I relate with more kindness and more compassion and more renunciation, my life just works better. My life, the experience, the subjective experience is lighter and more free and nimble. And uh, so that gets reinforced because it's directly, immediately experienced as being a more skillful, useful, easeful way of being. So this is key to how the Buddha understands the awakening process. It has to be a natural process, which is why that uh, metaphor I used and many people have used over the years of a river is such a useful metaphor for understanding the practice. Because otherwise we're going to immediately assume, oh, I have to be skillful and I have to stop being unskillful. It's not like that framing is totally wrong. It's just a limited way of our understanding. So there's a, there's a wonderful book. Um, it's called The Issue at Hand. And you can get a digital copy of this freely at um, Insight Meditation Center's website. That's uh, the center that Gil Fronstall started in the uh, Redwood City. It's a Silicon Valley area of the Bay Area in California. It's really one of the great uh, Insight Meditation Centers here in the country. And Gil is a wonderful teacher, of course, and also happens to be a, a wonderful Buddhist scholar, which really supports the clarity of his teaching, I think. Anyway, his book, The Issue at Hand, or Issue at Hand, is just a summary of the Buddhist teachings. Very simple, powerful book. And he has a chapter there called According with Nature. And he's really talking about this aspect of wisdom that's all about aligning with what's already true. And that's another way of really um, getting a sense of what the Buddha means by wisdom. Wisdom is that force in our mind that aligns with the way it already is, always has been, always will be, because it's natural. And it's um, that alignment, like taking refuge in the nature, the underlying nature, the way things are, you see, that already has that sense of less dissonance, less stress when we align. 
So, I mean, this is a simple question we can ask ourselves, just as we're living our life and, of course, in our meditation times, just a simple question like, am I working in alignment with nature or am I working against it? <laughs> you know, it just really clarifies, like, am I trying to make something happen or is my practice about aligning with what is happening? doesn't mean I'm giving in to some bad habit. It means that I'm saying, oh yeah, this bad habit is moving. That's not a bad habit. Seeing a bad habit as a movement of nature is not succumbing to the bad habit. It's actually like that chant we did at the beginning of the class for those who were here. Everything arises and passes away. Seeing this clearly, understanding this deeply as it actually is, leads to the deepest happiness, which is peace. Right? So, um, we're trying to work with nature. And in this chapter, Gil gives the example like, you know, a gardener seeing the little sprout, thinking, oh, just tug on the seedling to help it grow. Well, of course, it doesn't work. What works is to understand the nature of the seedling, the seed, the seedling, the plant, and what is how to care for it, like what are the supporting causes. So when we get a sense of what it's like to be in the river of our life, the mind not dominated by greed, hatred, and delusion, not getting confused, identified with happiness, not getting confused or identified with unhappiness, with pleasure and pain, right? But just appreciating the more subtle but healing pleasure of non-attachment, of releasing, of letting go. And it's really about like how to stay in the river, how to stay in the movement of our life. And this is really like just as a basic teaching, like when we're sitting in meditation, when, excuse me, when the body or mind feels tight, instead of immediately trying to make the body and the mind not tight, get curious about the tightness. Maybe the tightness itself, the clenching of our heart, the clenching of our jaw, the fixedness of the mind, maybe that is also in motion. But we're just, the wisdom hasn't yet seen what feels like a knot hasn't seen that the knot, hasn't experienced that the knot is already in motion, already has in its underlying nature the nature to unwind and keep moving. Because see, this is the mistake we make over and over again. When we experience suffering from a superficial point of view, we think it's a personal problem for me to fix. And that way of framing throws us off from the start so that everything we do to alleviate suffering ends up being a cause for more tension. This is why listening doesn't mean we don't do anything or we don't participate in the bigger places of suffering in our world, like injustice, racism, economic injustice, climate change, so many ways that we're basically setting emotion, suffering for each other. It just means that our activity, our participation 
really needs to come from this deep presence, this deep sensitivity, this deep listening, as opposed to a fixed view. Because a fixed view, really, this is another way in Buddhism we understand wisdom is uh, being suspicious of any fixed view. And it's just another way of saying that what we value, what wisdom values is the listening, is the sensitivity and the activity, the so-called my action in the world, is a natural flow, a natural blossoming out of that sensitivity. Just like when you think of a kayak navigating a river and not getting caught in the whirlpools or the rapids or the eddies or whatever, right? It's really about understanding the currents and so not getting confused where I end up caught up in some branches or whatever. And it's the same way. It's like we're, we're in living our life and we're not imagining that I have to do it and I have to do it right and I'll be screwed if I do it wrong because that fear and that seeming dependence on needing to be perfect ends up getting in the way of what really helps, which is that the sensitivity that we have when we're mindfully aware. There's a really powerful teaching from the Buddha where he says, he's talking about samadhi, which is really this wise, stable sensitivity. You know, it gets badly translated as concentration, but samadhi is much more about the settled sensitivity. Because the heart is settled, the mind is settled, we're profoundly sensitive, but we're not destabilized because of the sensitivity. Because the thing about samadhi, it has that wholesome pleasure of solidity, stability, settledness, and that the healing of that stability allows us to handle the sensitivity that comes with samadhi. And the Buddha says in one of, I think, one of the most useful, important lines of teaching is when somebody, and this is a paraphrase, when somebody has samadhi, the heart inclines toward nibbana, toward freedom, the freedom of release, the going out of the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. Just like the Ganges, the big river in northern India, flows to the ocean, the heart will incline toward release, the unbinding, when there's that stability. And this is what wisdom understands, like what I need to become a more free, a more wise and kind human being isn't to become perfect, but rather to learn how to be sensitive right in the middle of my life, at ease, listening, and just following the current as it comes and goes. So let me just finish by reading a little from uh, Gil's chapter, and then hopefully some of you can stay for the small groups today. But this is Gil's chapter on according with nature, and he's just using that metaphor of a river. I believe that spiritual practice unfolds most smoothly when we find how to accord ourselves with nature. 
A useful metaphor for this is a river. To enter the spiritual life fully is to enter a stream that eventually carries you to the great ocean. All you have to do is get into the river and stay in it. Trust, persistence, mindfulness, clarity, and insight help us float in the river. Once we are floating, the nature of the river is to carry us effortlessly to the ocean. If we fight the river, if we fight against the current, we can exhaust ourselves trying to go against the natural flow. And he likes this image and makes a lot of sense. Ajahn Chah, a wonderful teacher who has passed away now, but he also used that image of the river. He uh, mentions how it's so much better than the image of climbing a mountain, you know, which just seems like a big burden the whole way. And like, and, and it's just, lent, you know, the, the image of climbing a mountain to get to the peak, it really sort of lends itself to this cult of perfection needing to become perfect. And all the groveling people who are further down the mountain, you know, they don't know a thing and judgment. And But when we're in a river, it's like we kind of get like, oh yeah, sometimes I'm really in the flow of my life. I'm really not projecting greed, hatred, and delusion, not entrapped by those habits. And I really understand the freedom the Buddha points to. And other times I'm really stuck in an eddy and I'm thrashing about, and I'm hating myself, and blaming the river, and blaming the the branches, and and then I'm back in the river. He goes on a little later, This does not mean that spiritual practice requires nothing of us. A fast river may require our attention and navigation to stay in the current, off the rocks, and out of the eddies. Practice, practice requires mindfulness and investigation, supported by calm and inner stability. To discover nature and how to accord ourselves with it, often this entails learning how to leave ourselves alone, how not to interfere with the natural unfolding and healing that will occur if we give them a chance. Our conscious mind may not know what is, a, what is supposed to unfold. Like a flower that needs water and fertilizer, our inner life opens in its varied ways when it's ready, if we nourish it with attentiveness, compassion, and acceptance. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org